This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christie. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kevin Harrow. And today's topic is going to be the doctrine of original sin. So we'll be getting into that. Do check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. We have archived shows there for you to listen to. If you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes at Evidence for Faith. And there's another app out there that you can get on the Android market, but I didn't write down the name. Somebody told me about it, and they said they listened to Evidence for Faith over it. And I said, oh, send me the information. Then I never got it. So we'll have to get that to you. But that that sounds good. So Because sometimes I just have my phone with me, and I've searched for the radio program and haven't been able to find it. So this will be helpful. We've got about 150 shows for people to listen to. I'm afraid my phone still has a little hand crank on the side. Oh, so does it? Have okay. That capability. All right. Okay. Well, someday you'll move up to the modern ones <laughs> with the rubber bands on the inside. Uh, also, check out the Ratio Christie webpage. That's uh, ratiochristie.org. Well, we like to start the show with a quotation, and we've been running through a series of C.S. Lewis quotes with the occasional pause here and there. So this week's quote from C.S. Lewis is, We make men without chests and expect expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor, and we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Uh, From C.S. Lewis, a good indication about where the world is headed. I hope you didn't purposely plan that because of Tuesday's elections, Keith. Oh, no, that's great, though. Yeah, Mm. very apropos. And he's talking about the relativism, you know, moral relativism. This was, this quote, I'm pretty certain, was from the book that he wrote, which now the title completely escapes my mind. Me too. All right. Okay. Well, you know what? Maybe I can... Dub it in in, for podcasting purposes. I'll try that. See, uh, I haven't done that before, but we'll see if we can do that. Well, we got a bunch of news items because we didn't have a show last week due to the hurricane. And the radio station was shut down, but apparently uh, everything is fine there. No, No real damage there. And even though Kirk Hastings is off today, it's because he's sick, not because of any hurricane related problems he's got a he was safe at his house so everything went well but uh, still a lot of people in the area in the region with problems and so a lot of christians out there helping Uh, somebody from our church was giving a report about the work that they and friends were doing and people were saying that we need more people like you out there well you know what that's what this show is about, is making more people like Brian Sacco's and others who are out there, Christians who are donating their time and energy to help others. If you 
want a better world, you need to become a Christian. So, and you need to encourage other people to become a Christian. So, and then there will be more people out there like him. And maybe if someone's listening to the podcast, they might be curious what region that we are in southern New Jersey. So, the storm yep. hit our coast, our Atlantic coast, quite severely. Yep. yep. Quite we're, severely. We're right outside of Atlantic City. All right. Well, let's see. News item number one. This came across from Fox News about a study about Lucy, the Australopithecines. So these are the ape-like creatures that are supposed to be progenitors of the human race. And it's been suggested that they were able to walk upright based on the ankle bones uh, and hip bones. But this new study has taken a look at the Australopithecine uh, shoulder bones, and it turns out that they were actually tree dwellers. So they were tree climbers and tree dwellers. So even though they could perhaps temporarily have spent time on their feet, walking on two feet, uh, they actually spent most of their time swinging from trees. So that kind of goes along with what the, I, I guess, the, the popular belief was that this was an early hominid, but there was always been a minority of archaeologists who claimed that it was a orangutan. So, Would that have been considered um, what they would say would be evidence of a transitory, the transition from ape to human? Is that what they, Lucy has been purported to its value to be? Yeah, the, the big deal was that Lucy could walk upright. So even though it's about the size of an orangutan and every other detail of it looks like an orangutan, it's because... They, it was thought that she could walk upright. So they assumed that since she could walk upright, that the Australopithecines spent most of their time walking upright. So, but apparently that's not true. They spent most of their time climbing in trees. All right. Let's see. Well, we've got another item. Why don't you do yours? So I have here a piece uh, from off the Reasons to Believe website titled Deadly Radiation in God's Design by uh, Dr. Hugh Henry, Ph.D. Uh, it's basically an article on radiation and what those implications are concerning God and God's uh, sovereignty. In the August 2012 issue of Scientific America, uh, there was an article, Deadly Rays from Clouds, Thunderstorms Give Out Powerful Blasts of X-Rays and Gamma Rays. And as you know, Keith, since I'm a professional pilot, this immediately caught my interest as in whether I wanted to go to work tomorrow or not. <laughs> During a thunderstorm, right? And uh, forest thunderstorms, they said they're relatively harmless. Uh, the small amount of gamma rays coming from a thunderstorm is nothing really to worry about, with the exception that if uh, you were struck by an aspect of that uh, electronic and gamma ray emission, you could receive up to a lifetime of natural radiation dose in a fraction of a second. Uh, something, as a professional pilot, uh, doesn't make me feel too good. Right. But for our purposes today, this article brings up the question of God's providence. Why would a benevolent God subject us to bombardment by deadly rays and seemingly no benefit to humanity and even harmful in the smallest degrees? So that was his like his capstone lead-in to discuss this. And basically, to summarize this article, 
Uh, it basically said since 1946, uh, it was thought that even smallest levels of radiation were harmful right. and therefore avoid them. Right. But then the article goes on to say that the structure, the design of the cell, the divine design that he worded, is able to handle small doses and to repair itself at the DNA level. So his contention basically is that this happened due to a divine design that God in his benevolence foresaw this and he designed our body structures to handle small levels of radiation. Right. He yeah. did lastly say that this does not warrant us, like used to be in the past, apparently, to go take uranium baths. <laughs> yep. So, but, uh, yeah, so very interesting. And lots of, he reported on many, many different studies that seem to show that uh, the living cell is able to repair radiation damage so in fact it, it uh he even seemed to think that it was beneficial in ways because the living cell makes use of the damage that caused by the radiation to actually rearrange the genome and it'll actually change into different types so it's as if it's monitoring its environment and it'll change into the type of organism that it needs to be to be in that kind of uh, environment. So again, more evidence that the cell and organisms are designed to adapt to their environments and that they re-engineer themselves in order to become better able to survive under any kind of conditions, including uh, higher than normal doses of radiation. And you would want, you would wish, I wish that my home computers and all my computers <laughs> were designed that way yeah absolutely and because my computers to adapt to sure are evidently you um, intently designed but they can't seem to be able to do what a organic cell can do that's right no no far far inferior so then uh, this is from evolution news and views it's an interesting article and i've heard about it from other places but i just happened to print this one off this is about a near-death experience, and for those listeners who might be more interested in further talk about near-death experiences, you can check out some of our podcasts. We did an entire show on some of the more famous and strongly evidenced near-death experiences, so uh, you can look for that. But this one is causing quite a stir because the person that it happened to is a neuroscientist. So this was a near-death experience that happened to Dr. Alexander. Let's see here. I don't see his first name anywhere. But he's from the University of Virginia Medical School, and he's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. And we don't have time for the whole article, but I'll just read a quotation from it. This is from Dr. Alexander. He was in a coma, and... Uh, had a brain infection and his brain shut down. So by all the medical testing that they could do, uh, his brain was uh, not, he was not able to think at all. And yet he reports that uh, he did. So he says, it took me months to come to terms with what happened to me, not just the medical impossibility that I had been conscious during my coma, but more importantly, the things that happened during that time. Toward the beginning of my adventure, I was in a place of clouds, big, puffy, pink-white ones that showed up sharply against the deep blue-black sky. And then it you know, just goes on and on, talking about the 
people that he met, the loved ones um, that had died previous to him that he uh, met and talked to, spent a lot of time with while he was in the coma and then came back. So this fits right in with all of the other uh, very heavily documented accounts, uh, even patients where they have intentionally shut down their brain and actually monitored to make sure there were no brain waves at all in order to to perform surgery on the brain. And uh, still those people uh, reported that they were conscious. And in fact, they were in the room listening and they were able to repeat, repeat back conversation and uh, describe things that they could not possibly have known about and things like that. So lots of uh, reports about near-death experience. And uh, But I thought it was interesting. This article goes on to see what some of the reaction is from some of the uh, intelligentsia, the atheist viewpoint and some of the leading atheists, their response is ridicule. So that's mm. that's their response. Uh, really sad, but... Well, they would have to almost ridicule it because otherwise there is the implication that we are more than just our biological entities and that there is something that transcends just the organic. Right. Yeah, yeah, they... Um, not willing to take the issue seriously, let's put it that way. So so that's as somebody who is trying to decide how you're going to live your life, you know, are you going to become a Christian? Are you going to be an atheist? That's what you have to think about. You have to think about that the atheists are so narcissistic, uh, so judgmental, so elitist and superior that they condemn all other views without even giving it a hearing. So do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of uh, a group of people that condemn any different ideas without giving it a fair shake. Whereas with Christianity, uh, we believe in open dialogue and, you know, examining the facts. And in fact, that's why I became a Christian was because of examining the facts. Well, let's uh, do our last news item. Although I want to remind people that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kevin Harrell. And we're going to be talking about the doctrine of original sin, how it fits into the Christian worldview and the role that it plays. If you'd like to discuss that with us, you can call in at 609-398-1020. All right, this last news item, also from Evolution News and Views, is very interesting because it adds more evidence against evolution, that is macroevolution, not microevolution. And in previous shows, we talked about the difficulty that evolutionists have explaining how even a single protein could have come about. So, you know, without a living cell, you don't have any possibility of evolution because you don't have replication. So you need some way to generate proteins in order to make a living cell. And amino acids are the building blocks of, pro of proteins. So the problem is that just combining amino acids randomly to make even a single protein, you would use up more time than there is available in the life of the universe to create a single protein. And you need hundreds of proteins to generate even the most simplest living cell. So another problem that's come up is protein folding. Once you've got that protein, that chain of amino acids, it has to be folded properly. So in order for it to be folded properly, if you were, again, to do it randomly, uh, it would take more time than there is in the entire universe. So 
uh, it simply cannot be done by a random process. And recently, Doug Axe in, in his research on microbiology has shown that you can't even change one type of protein to another pro- type of protein without taking up all the time that there is that exists in the universe. So even getting from one type of protein to another type of protein that looks almost exactly the same, it just takes too long. You just simply can't randomly do it. So uh, this article now adds to that body of data and talks about another realm that is impossible to generate by uh, random processes. So, And again, we're talking about how to get a living thing in the first place. So we're not talking about natural selection because there's no replication to begin with So, because uh, you're starting before life. So this is, uh, they have an interesting quote from Richard Dawkins in The Blind Watchmaker. And he says, it is true that there are quite a number of ways of making a living hyphen, flying, swimming, swinging through the trees, and so on. But, so that's got to be a typo. He must have meant to say, make a living thing. Flying, swimming, swimming through the, t- through the trees and so on, but however many ways there may be of being alive, it is certainly that there are vastly more ways of being dead, or rather, not alive. You may throw cells together at random over and over again for a billion years, and not, one, not once will you get a conglomeration that flies or swims or burrows or runs or does anything, even badly, that could remotely be construed as working to keep itself alive. And, of course, the point that he's making is that without natural selection, evolution is a non-starter. You can't just create a living organism by random processes. It doesn't happen. You have to have some process. Now, of course, the intelligent design scientists will say that the evidence is that it was intelligently designed, and that's why it wasn't a random process. That's why you have life. But the Darwinian hypothesis is that there's a process that could mimic design and could actually create complex things. You keep looking like you want to say something and you don't say anything. It's really, it's like, this is radio. People can't see you nodding. I tell you, when you read that quote from Dawkins, it almost sounded like he was against evolution. Yeah, he's against um, a false view of evolution. A false view. So he would say the true view in this case is that thing that can mimic intelligence design. Right, natural selection. Natural selection. Right, yeah. So that's his, that's his solution to how there can be an almost infinite number of possible arrangements of living cells where the organism would be dead compared to the very few, comparatively very few, arrangements of living things where the organism would be living, arrangement of living cells. So, uh, and that's, so that's his argument saying that, of course, therefore, we know we need natural selection in order to weed out. Of course, the problem that he has is, what's he starting with? That's what I was thinking. I couldn't make the connection between natural selection of something that's already there with how did it get there in the first place. Right. He's starting already with living cells. So the yes. problem is that there is an equally disturbing problem in living cells, and that is that there are almost infinite arrangements of the components within the cell that result in a dead cell. 
and very few arrangements of all those thousands of components inside the cell that can actually exist in a, in a living, functional way. So here's what this article says. But now consider the origin of an entire cell. All cells possess what has been called an interactome, namely a comp- complex network comprising a host of cellular constituents. Proteins, nucleic acids, lipids, metal ion uh, cofactors, and so on. If the, and this is called the Leventhal paradox. If the Leventhal paradox arises from the difficulty of searching the space of uh, possible configurations for a single protein, that goes back to that amino acid to protein, that's the Leventhal paradox. The new version of the paradox, formulated by Tampo and Rose, which was published in, let's see, Protein Science, Volume 20, in just last year, it asks the same question for the possible arrangements of the cell's interactome, an enormously large collection of objects with a correspondingly greater search space as and then uh, goes on to quote from the article, but I don't think we need to do it. It's very complex, but basically what they're saying is that there are all these components and all these components interact with each other and they have to interact in a certain way for the cell to be alive. So if they don't interact in that way, the cell doesn't live. So all of these arrangements, would it would take an infinitesimal amount of time to get that configuration it'd be like it'd be like well it's even worse than this but imagine that you want to play a game of chess and so in order to play a game of chess you have to have the chess pieces set up correctly so what you're going to do is you're going to take the chess pieces uh, in a box and you're going to shake the box and pour them out on the board and you're going to do that over and over and over again until you get uh, the board set up so you see the point? The point is that the chess pieces could be all over the place. They can be anywhere, but you can't start a chess game that way. You have no. to start the chess game with the pieces set up the right way. So all the constituents inside the cell have to be able to interact with each other in a very specified way, even though they could interact in an almost infinite number of ways. Yet mm-hmm. they don't. They only interact in a specific way that allows the cell to live. So here's the conclusion. This is amazing that this was printed in a, I assume that protein science is an evolutionary journal, but here's what these scientists say. Our calculations of combinatorial complexity show that the emergent interactome could not have self-organized spontaneously from its isolated protein components. Rather, it attains its functional state by templating the interactome of a mother cell and maintains that state by a continuous expenditure of energy. In the absence of a prior framework of existing interactions, it is far more likely that combined cellular constituents would end up with a non-functional aggregated state, one incompatible with life. The spontaneous origination of a de novo, and that just means brand new, cell 
has yet to be observed. All extant cells are generated by the division of pre-existing cells that provide the necessary template for perpetuation of the interactome. Is that amazing? So they're basically saying evolution is impossible. You cannot get life from non-life, right? The origin of life is impossible. You need a miracle. Surprise, surprise, that's what Christianity says actually happened, and that's what the science shows did happen. So in other words, it was a starting point problem. Yep, just like the starting point of the universe, the starting point of life, the starting point of intelligent, cognitive beings like human beings, uh, and on and on it goes. You need all these separate miracles to have occurred if you want to have life like we have. Or you could just deny it all and be an atheist. I'm reminded of the multiverse theory and how basically it has the same starting point problem is how did it all how did all those multiverses get there to begin with right exactly where where did they come from where what is the mechanism that produces the multiverses so you're just pushing the problem back you still have to have a beginning so and even then the odds are that you would only come up with a universe in which there was a simple observer so to observe the universe. And since we are much more than just an observer, we are interactive agents that have free will and can create. We are way over-engineered to recognize the universe as is. So the multiverse doesn't even, as a solution for the beginning of the universe, it doesn't even solve the problem because right. so we're still way over-engineered. I heard you say the word free will. I guess that leads into our topic today. Yeah, absolutely, because we are going to be talking about the doctrine of original sin and the fact that God created human beings and gave them free will, and they chose to disobey. So we're going to talk about that and why this fits in with the biblical worldview. So, you know, people will, a lot of times, I'm sure, Kevin, you've been asked this, Are people, do you think that people are generally good or evil? So this is kind of a discussion starter that sometimes happens, and I've had people ask me about this. So what do you think? Are people basically good or evil? How does a Christian answer that? I would ask more questions than what is the context as it being asked? Why is a person asking that question? Because I think their motive reflects it because as a theologian, I would have to answer and say people are not basically good. Right. Do we observe people doing good? Yes. Do we observe people doing amazingly good things? Yes. But when we look at the whole picture, people are not basically good. Yeah. In fact, so what you're saying then is that there seems to be the fact that human beings have this broad range of possibilities. Correct. So humans can possibly be very, very good, like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or somebody else. But on the other end, you have many, many people, in fact, probably more than there are a number of Mother Teresas who are evil, mass murderers, you know, selfish killers, lots more of those. So even though there's this range, it seems like everything leans toward the bad side. Yeah, I would say I'm the thought popped in my head of some other religions more from the East where we'd see everything as a complete 
absolute, perfectly balanced world between good and evil. But the experience of evil, and in my world travel, seeing some horrible evil, is the evil that is done is so repugnant and harmful and just devastating that to say that it's balanced out somewhere by good just does not make sense to me. There has to be a better explanation than a simple balanced diagram. And the other issue that is readily recognizable to most people is the fact that children are naturally selfish, right? Children have to be taught to be to be good. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. He'll learn that on his own. Now, of course, you can accelerate things by putting a child in with a bunch of other bad children and he'll learn all their bad habits. So you can teach bad behavior. That's called preschool. But uh, but if you want children to be good, you have to teach them to be good. So they're naturally selfish. You mean only children? I was thinking grown <laughs> adults too. Yeah, that's right. The ones who haven't matured, right? They want what they want when they want it. So we do have this independent drive, and and you know even as mature adults, you know we want to be in charge. We don't want to be under anyone else's authority. We want to do what we want to do, and that has been behind every conflict since the dawn of time. It continues. Absolutely. Now, I should mention we're using a great book on this topic. So our talk today is based on The Unshakable Truth by Josh McDowell. He goes through this with a lot of other great ideas. So we've kind of um, using this as a skeleton idea and then building on what he's talked about in this in that book so why is it that's the next obvious question why is it that people are like this you know why are they born naturally knowing how to do evil have to be taught to be good why are people always so selfish and narcissistic why are there so many people and why has there been so much tragedy that's come from all this that's so, a very good question because you want an explanation that best fits that question. You don't want an explanation that may, just kind of um, makes me feel good or fits right. my worldview. No, I want the real deal. What is the best explanation? Right. One one approach by uh, secular humanism, the secular, secular left, is to say that there isn't anything such thing as right and wrong. So it's just to kind of destroy the question in the first place. You know, uh, it's to ignore that question. Are people good or evil? It's basically just to say, whatever you do, that's good for you. And that's a really ignorant approach to this question of right and wrong. Where did evil come from? Are people good or evil? I was thinking of the Latin phrase, really? Really? I've seen some horrible things. And just to say that it's a cultural or relative from one group to another, no. No, I cannot accept that. Right. Evil is evil no matter where it is. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kevin Harrell. And we are talking about... Original sin, the doctrine of original sin and how it fits into the Christian worldview. So the Christian view is that humans were created in the image of a loving triune God whose persons were already in a harmonious relationship with each other. So 
he created us to be like him. So, and that means that we are relational. So we were intended to be in a close relationship with him. And that's how things started out. Adam and Eve loved God. They loved each other. And they were in a very close, bonded relationship with each other and with God. So God essentially invited them into his, circ- you know, his circle, of, uh, circle of friends, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And hey, you guys, you know, communicate with us, have a relationship with us. And that was the initial intention. And it still is, really. I mean, you know, God is still a relational being, and he still wants to be in relationship with us. So the problem is that you can ask the question, if Adam and Eve were like God, were they really like God? I mean, were they like God in the sense that they knew good and evil, right? I mean, yes, yes, they were. Or, yes, you hear me saying the question. Yes, I hear you saying. (laughs) Because biblically, we would hold that there's a certain tree, and that would lead into another way of thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah, let me look up Genesis 3.22, and I'll give you the what happened after the fall. Because it gives a little insight into the way Adam and Eve were before the fall. So in chapter 3, 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So in other words, uh, Adam and Eve were not like God in that area that they did not know good and evil. So you have to ask yourself then, how close of a relationship could Adam and Eve in this kind of state of innocence? So they were in this state of innocence. They hadn't done anything wrong. And they really couldn't know about good and evil. So in that sense, could they really then have known God? Right? Could they have been, could they have intimately known God? I would say no. If you take the whole nature of God. Right. If I would think in a marriage, what is the test of a marriage? Is it a test when everything is uh, honky-dory and prosperous? Or is the real test, I can remember my mother suffered from grievous cancer, penetrating cancer, and I am still to this day impressed with the quality of my father's character in supporting her in those bad moments. So you, you probably think then that your, your father knew her very well, right? I think their relationship entered a new area, a new aspect because of what happened, that the destruction of her body. And she was able to know him in a way that she did not know him before. So that's kind of what we're talking about. That's Human beings can get to know God in a new way uh, because we now know good and evil. Correct. It, so, for instance, think about Adam and Eve in the state of innocence could they have known that God would die for them? No. Right? I mean, right? If, imagine God walking in the garden with Adam and he says, you know, Adam, you know, I love you so much, I would die for you. Right? Uh, God, what does die mean? <laughs> right. What does die mean? <laughs> what do you mean you die for me? Right. Why would that happen? Right. Exactly. You would have no idea. Uh, another thing is uh, thinking about God as the sunum bonum you know, the best of all virtues. Well, humility is a virtue. 
So God is the greatest, most humble being that exists. So how could Adam have known how humble God was, right? Could God tell him, hey, Adam, I'm really a humble. I, in fact, I'm the most humble being that there is in this universe. Adam would say, ha, 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 that's a funny one. Good, good, God. Keep slapping yourself on the back there, right? So you're, You mean like when we say that we're proud of our humility? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But in fact, because of what happened, because Adam and Eve sinned, and because death and separation came into the world, and because God saved us from our sins, we were able to see the incredible depth of humility that God, the creator of the universe, would mm. come into, the, into human time and space Yes. And die a terrible death for us. Take our our punishment on him to be humiliated, castigated, scoffed at, spit on, and yet with all that, say, forgive them for they know not what they do. So he was incredibly humble. In fact, he is the most humble being in the universe. And we could never have known that unless we had eaten of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. So this wasn't really plan A uh, or plan B, Jesus dying on the cross. This was plan A all along. God knew what would happen, and this was part of the plan because the end is so much greater than the end result of, uh, which is from Ephesians, or actually it's Romans 8.29, where it talks about us being, or Jesus being the first among many brothers, that we are to be become transformed into the likeness of Christ so that we will be brothers with him in fellowship. So it's that whole idea, again, getting back to that relationship that they had from, that the Trinity had from the beginning of the universe. So what's gone wrong, though? I mean, now, obviously, we don't see that. God doesn't walk in the in the garden with us. In fact, there's this concept called epistemic distance where God seems to be distant. Mm. You know, he seems to be not around. Where is he, right? And people have pushed him away. People don't want him in their lives. There's a famous quote from Aldous Huxley, who was an atheist and talks about he and his atheistic friends. And he says, talks about what atheism provided for them. And he says, quote, liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And that is really point in case of what is out there today. I mean, people do not want to be in relationship with God because they want to do what they want to do. They want to behave selfishly. They don't trust God. They don't trust that he, his rules are really for their best interest and that they will actually prosper better if they follow his rules. They don't believe that, and so they go their own way. There's a quote I have from sociologist Christian Smith, who talks about uh, the typical teenager today in America who believes that God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problem that arises professionally, helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process, close quote. So even the bulk, the majority of uh, young people who are believers, you know, don't have a real close relationship with God. They just think that he's there to do things for them. And maybe 
what you're saying based on what you talked about before is in part due to a lack of knowledge about God, that they have a very peripheral Absolutely, knowledge. Absolutely, that's a great point. And the less they know him, the less they are able to relate to God. Right. The problem really is free will. God created us like him. He created us with freedom to act, freedom to create, freedom to work, freedom to do all these things. And that also meant the freedom to trust God, right? The freedom to be in relationship. So he didn't try to force his love on us. He could have created humans with no free will, but he made us like he was free to choose. And God doesn't force that relationship on us. He doesn't force his love on us. He's devoid of any kind of self-serving power plays, any kind of coercion. And that's why it appears that there is this epistemic distance. It appears that God is taking a hands-off approach Mm. to things, and he is. He is taking a hands-off approach. He gives us just enough information to know that he exists and to seek him, and he will reward us if we seek him. But not too much information so that if you don't want him, if you don't want to be in relationship with God, you want to go your own way, you want to seek pleasure, you want to serve yourself, he will let you do that. So he stays just far enough away that you can choose to be evil if you want to. And that before the show, Kevin, we were talking about that description of the example called the sheriff in the saloon. You know, when the sheriff's in the saloon, nothing happens. It's only when the sheriff leaves that the bad guys cause trouble. So for for any kind of a world where things actually happen, God has to do this. He has to step away so that people can actually be free the way he made them. So on the other hand, you know, they had the choice to believe that God was acting unselfishly and had their best interests at heart. So we could be like God is. We could have been other-focused. So Adam and Eve, at the time that they were tempted, they could have been other-focused. They could have thought, what would God think about this? Or why did God tell me not to do this? But instead, they were selfish. They decided to, to go their own way. So that broke the trust. And that's what has happened. That's what Christianity teaches. They demonstrated that they did not trust God. And they broke the relationship. So they were essentially, they unplugged themselves. They removed themselves from God. They unplugged themselves from the true source of love, from the true source of life itself. We know that the Bible tells us that God is love, joy, peace, goodness. He's everything that's needed to bring pure happiness and joy. So if they had only stayed in relationship with him, they would have had happiness and joy in their state of innocence But they chose to break that relationship, and so they pulled themselves away. But in a sense, they also pushed God away, right? God had already made them the sovereigns of the universe. He had made them kings over their domain. And so their act of breaking relationship essentially pushed them out of the house. It's it's like uh, when a couple breaks up, you know, the owner of the house gets to keep the house, and the other person has to leave. So God had to leave. So the choice, that choice ruined their relationship with God and pushed him away from them. So the result was that that source of life, that source of goodness, became more distant from the universe, and the universe suffered entropy. The 
universe suffered death. Every plant, every animal, every human born since has become subject to pain, disease, decay, sorrow, and death. For those who'd like to look up, you can look up Romans 8, 20 through 22, Romans 5, verse 12, and the beginning part of Romans 6, verse 23. I guess it is important to say you talk about relationship, uh, you talk about free will and choice, and that it's the degree of consequence uh, just related to my humanness. If I bring home my wife the wrong choice of smoothie, there's a whole different ramification of consequences. And as if I choose to cheat on her, the consequences are totally different, even though for a bad choice of the will, the consequences are such that one has a lasting and traumatic and significant effect on the relationship. That's right. Whereas the other one just results, I have to eat two smoothies. So, yeah, exactly. So the idea then is that what's the biggest choice you have in your entire life? That is to choose Christ, to choose to be in relationship with God your Father the God who created and created you, who wants to be in relationship with you, who's seeking, desires to bring you into his loving relationship to make you one of the brothers of Christ. And so that one choice being the most important thing you could choose has the most ramifications, has the most um, you know, problems if you choose wrongly. It's a real choice of heaven or hell. And what is hell other than the absence of pleasure, the absence of goodness? It is the absence of God himself. It's separation from God. Separation from God. So uh, that is the choice. So Christianity uh, offers you relationship with your creator. And this doctrine of the original sin, I guess let me just quote it from the book Unshakable Truth. God created humans in his image to relate to him lovingly, but that relationship was destroyed because of original sin. Sin was passed to the entire human race, and consequently all are born spiritually dead and utterly helpless to gain favor with God. And the emphasis there is the word destroyed. The relationship was not hurt a little. It wasn't little boo-boo. It was destroyed because of a religion, original sin. Yeah, absolutely. So, and so this doctrine, one of the foundational doctrines of Christianity, it's a great way of showing how superior the Christian worldview is to other religions, other worldviews that don't have this doctrine. They seem at a loss to understand why it is that human beings can be, on the one hand, good like Mother Teresa, and on the other hand, evil like Hitler, and that both these extremes can come out of human beings. And yet, we see it perfectly explained in the Christian worldview. So, the Christian worldview says that as a result of sin and death, the universe is in a state of increasing entropy, moving from order to disorder. There is no macro evolution. Everything is actually getting worse. Everything is dying and can permanently reverse the inevitable And there's no utopia. You're, you can't create a human utopia because humans are fallen. So, it also shows us that Sin has consequences. What you do matters. Yes. Right? If you sin, it matters. Yes. Um, 
And if you choose life, God says he puts before you life or death, choose life. So, um, so that, uh, that's our doctrine of original sin. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kevin Harrell. And if you'd like to send comments or questions, you can send them to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,